This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come down, O love divine. As we sang, O Comforter, draw near, within our hearts appear, and kindle it thy holy flame bestowing. Lord, as we sit under your word, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to see the glory of Jesus, to see what he's doing in us and through us. We pray that you would speak for your servants are listening. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, about 50 years ago, one of the leaders of the Eastern Orthodox Church, a man by the name of Patriarch Ignatius IV, he spoke at a gathering of Christian leaders from around the world. It was a gathering of leaders across all denominations, all Christian traditions. And while he had everyone in the room, so to speak, he asked them a very important question. And it's a question that I think the church should always be asking in every generation. And his question was this, how can the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus matter today? Put slightly differently, how can the message of the gospel matter in our world in our time. And this was his answer, the Holy Spirit. The only way that Jesus can matter today or any day is the Holy Spirit. Everything hinges on the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, Ignatius said, God is distant and Christ is in the past. Without the Holy Spirit, the gospel is a dead letter Without the Holy Spirit, the church is simply another organization. Without the Holy Spirit, authority is domination, mission is propaganda, and liturgy is nostalgia. Without the Holy Spirit, Jesus is just another historical figure. Without the Holy Spirit, the church is a museum, or maybe a social club, or worse still, an institution of manipulation and control. But with the Holy Spirit, everything is different. With the Holy Spirit, the risen Christ is present here, now, among us. With the Holy Spirit, God's life-giving and life-transforming power is unleashed. With the Holy Spirit, the church becomes a community where people can come and encounter the love of God, where they can be changed. Everything hinges on the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at the day of Pentecost together, the day when the dam burst and the Holy Spirit pours forth in power upon the people of God. So we're going to look at Pentecost twice this morning. First, we're going to review the story of Pentecost, unless you're fluent in five languages. It might have been difficult to follow along this morning. So we're going to review the story. 
And after we review the story itself, what I want us to do is to take a second look at Pentecost. I want us to look at the story of Pentecost through the lens of the story of the Tower of Babel. We're going to let Babel help us understand what's going on in Pentecost. So let's turn to Acts 2. It's on page 9 in your bulletin. The first thing our text tells us in Acts 2 is when. When this happens. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost simply means 50th. 50. Pentecost is the 50th day after the Jewish Passover. And it was the 50th day after Jesus was raised from the dead. And at this point in the story, at this point in Acts, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. Just before he ascended, some 10 days before this event, Jesus gathered his disciples around and he gave them some final instructions. One of the things he told them to do was hang out in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And so that's what the disciples are doing in obedience there in Jerusalem and they're hanging out together waiting for the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples are huddled together in a house in Jerusalem. I'm not sure what exactly they were expecting to happen, but as they were together, all of a sudden, three crazy things happen. First, there's a sound like the rush of a violent wind and it fills the space, it fills the house where they're all together. Second, flames that look like tongues of fire appeared on each one of the disciples. And then the Holy Spirit filled everyone in the house and they all began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability to do so. The disciples hear a tornado, they see fire, and they don't just see fire, people appear to be lit on fire. Like Moses and the burning bush, the people are ablaze but none of them are consumed. And God begins to speak through the flames. The spirit-filled disciples proclaim the mighty works of God, and they're speaking in languages that they didn't know two minutes ago. It all happens so fast, somehow the crowd just spills out of the house into the street. The people are shouting in at least a dozen different languages. Things are really escalating quickly. A crowd forms, and this is becoming a scene. The crowd gathers around, they stare at what's happening, but they don't quite know what to make of it. In verses 6 and 7, we get three words to describe their experience. They were bewildered. They were amazed. They were astonished. How is it that these Galileans can speak my language? How is it that these people who speak Aramaic with this funny northern accent are all of a sudden fluent in all of these other local dialects? Verse 9 of chapter 2 tells us that the crowd included Parthians and and Medes and Elamites and people from a dozen other places, from the north and from the south, from the east and from the west. Each of them heard the mighty deeds of God proclaimed in their mother tongue, in their heart language. It was an amazing scene, but it was also profoundly confusing. And I think it's hard for us to appreciate just how confusing, just how wild this scene would have been. So maybe this will help us appreciate it a little bit. I want you to imagine for a moment if a group of people uh, 
suddenly disrupted our very orderly worship service here at Ascension. Imagine if all the people sitting maybe in the first six rows here of the sanctuary all of a sudden stood up in the middle of my sermon, interrupted me mid-sentence, and started shouting in different languages. Imagine if that happened. It would certainly make for a memorable worship service. It wouldn't be one that we would forget very quickly. But what would you do? How would you feel? What would you think was happening? Some of us might think that this was a movement of the Holy Spirit, especially if it happens today. It's Pentecost, after all, and strange things happen. But most of us, I think, would probably think that it's some sort of mental health situation going on. Or maybe all those people are on drugs, right? Maybe they stuck around from the last service and there was something in communion wine or something. Who knows? Well, verse 12 tells us that basically this is how the crowd responded to what was happening at Pentecost. Some were curious. Maybe God is doing something here. This is strange. But others criticized what was going on. They said, these people must be drunk. Nobody knew what to do with it. And so the Apostle Peter, the leader of the startup church, he jumps up and he explains what's going on. He preaches the very first sermon in the life of the church. <clears throat> and he reassures the crowd, the people who are doing a wild thing have not been day drinking. Something far more outlandish is going on. Everything's coming true. The prophecies from the Old Testament, the promises of Jesus, every single one of them is coming true. Because Jesus died and rose again, God's spirit is being poured out on all flesh. Because Jesus has ascended to the Father and the Holy Spirit has come, Peter boldly proclaims that salvation is now open to all people, to everyone who would turn from their sins and follow Jesus. Now, we didn't read the story all the way through this morning, but this is how the story ends. It ends with 3,000 people repenting of their sins, turning to Jesus, and being baptized. It's amazing. And how does all of this happen? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has dropped on God's people and he is building the church. So that was our first pass through the story. And as I mentioned at the start of my sermon, what I wanna do now is take a second look at Pentecost. I wanna look at it through the lens of Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. And more specifically, what I want us to see is that Pentecost is a reversal of the story of the Tower of Babel. When we read the story of Pentecost, I actually think we're meant to hear the story of the Tower of Babel sort of playing in the background. It's supposed to be in the back of our minds. And maybe to put it a little bit stronger, unless we see Pentecost as a response or even as a reversal to Babel, I don't think we can fully appreciate what God is doing in the miracle of Pentecost. So with that in mind, I wanna highlight some of the parallels between these two stories, between Genesis 11 and Acts 2. Well, the story of the Tower of Babel is found in Genesis 11. We read it a few minutes ago. And the story begins by telling us that the whole earth spoke the same language. They all had the same words. And the people in the story, they're gathered in one place and they're gathered together to build a tower with its top in the heavens because that's where God is. 
And they were attempting to displace God, to push him out of the picture, to make a name for themselves. And God is just patiently watching all of this play out, patiently at first, at least. As Hebrew scholar Robert Alter describes it, in this story, man proposes and God disposes. The people say, come, let us work together and build a tower to the heavens. And God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they won't be able to work together anymore. And so the Lord scattered them across the whole earth. In Babel, all humanity is gathered in one place. And they're working together to displace God. And God thwarts their plans. He confuses their plans by confusing their language. Now, Genesis 11 is a really important chapter in the Bible, one of the most important, maybe. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham compares God's judgment here in Genesis 11 to God's judgment in Genesis 3, when humans first sin. Both stories carry the same kind of explanatory weight. Because of Adam and Eve's action in the garden, we all now live east of Eden. We live in a world that's marred by sin. Because of humanity's action at Babel, we all now live in a world of confusion and division. Babel, in other words, well, sorry, before I say that, the, the Bible frames the story so that we see Babel as an explanation for why the world is the way that it is. Babel explains why there's so much division and hostility between people groups. Babel becomes the epicenter of division and all of its toxic consequences. Fear, mistrust, hatred, violence, war. Babel is the beginning of a long and dark chapter of human history. But on the day of Pentecost, this is the start of something new, something different. The two events, the two chapters in the story are connected. Babel is the epicenter of human strife, but when the spirit is poured out on Pentecost, Jerusalem, the city of God, becomes the epicenter of reconciliation and of peace. On the day of Pentecost, the curse of Babel starts to come undone. It's getting unraveled. The Holy Spirit creates the possibility for a new normal for the people of God. Babel and Pentecost are so similar, and they're so different. In Babel, the people are gathered together, and they're all working to displace God. They want to force God out of the picture. On Pentecost, the disciples are gathered together to wait on God. They're waiting with great expectation for God to show up. In Babel, God comes down to the city to judge and to divide the people. But on Pentecost, God comes down to the city to bless and to unite the people. In Babel, God comes down to disrupt the construction of a heavenly temple made by human hands. On Pentecost, God comes down from heaven to build a temple himself. It's a temple not made with bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar, but it's a temple made of living stones, made of the people of God, made of us, who are held together by God's Holy Spirit. And the last parallel that I want to highlight this morning is one that I find the most surprising, and it has to do with language. 
So far, I've been talking about Pentecost as a response or a reversal to Babel. But as Pentecost plays out, it becomes clear that this isn't a straightforward reversal. A better word to describe the relationship between the two might be redemption. Pentecost is a redemption of Babel. And here's what I mean by that. If Pentecost was a straight reversal of Babel, we'd expect God to undo the curse of Babel by uniting the church around one language, a common language. But that's not what happens. What happens in the story is much more stunning and more beautiful and more amazing. As Pentecost plays out, God doesn't take us back to the good old days before the Tower of Babel. God doesn't just do away with the development and the diversity of human language. Instead, the Holy Spirit proclaims the mighty works of God through the many languages of the world. And I don't want us to miss what this means and why this is so significant. I think this is one of the most profound miracles the Holy Spirit performs on the day of Pentecost or on any other day. Instead of homogenizing human language, instead of making us all speak the same, the Holy Spirit takes the judgment for human sin, the confusion that comes from many languages, and God redeems it. The Holy Spirit takes the curse and he uses it for his own advantage. In the church, as, God's, as God joins people together with different languages, the Holy Spirit is beginning to knit the frayed fabric of human society back together. And it all starts with the church, in the church. And how he does it is amazing. He doesn't homogenize our differences. God harmonizes our differences. Like a musical chord where each separate note remains distinct, but also blends with the others to create one pleasing sound. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit harmonizes the different languages of the world to proclaim the glories of God. In Babel, the multiplicity of languages led to confusion and to division. On Pentecost, the multiplicity of languages leads to unity. Unity is a miracle. The unity created by the Holy Spirit has a certain texture to it. It's not bland and it's not boring. Holy Spirit unity is unity through diversity. It's unity without uniformity. And so on the very first day of the church, on the church's birthday, we get a glimpse of the end of time. We get a glimpse of heaven with the uncountable multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages who are gathered together around the throne of God worshiping Jesus. Now I want to tie all of this together for us this morning, and I want to end with one takeaway. The main thing that I think I want us to take away from this story of Pentecost this Sunday, the main thing I want us to take away is how important unity is to the Holy Spirit. I want us to understand and appreciate and know how important unity is to God. If nothing else, Pentecost teaches us that unity is one of the most important marks of the Spirit-filled church. Unity is one of the clearest signs that the kingdom of God really is here, that Christ really is risen. 
Unity is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ is true. And if unity is so important to the Holy Spirit, I think that we as the church, we as Ascension, need to take unity more seriously. I think this is always true for the church, but I think it's especially true for us who live right now. We live in an incredibly divided culture. I don't have to tell you that, I'm sure you know. We fight over literally everything. Whether it's politics or economics, whether it's sex or gender or race or religion, whether it's masks or vaccines, pretty much everything divides us. And the dividing lines of American culture cut right through the churches in America. They cut right through our church. I definitely feel it. You probably do too. It's getting harder and harder for us to hold together across our differences. And it's only gonna get harder the next few months with this upcoming election cycle. And so as a church, I want us to wrestle with what God is calling us to. What does this mean for us? I want us to take responsibility for unity. I want us to take it more seriously, to pray for it. I began my sermon with some questions that I think the church should always be asking itself. How can Jesus matter today? How can the gospel matter for our world, for our city, for our time? And I think the answer has a lot to do with the kind of unity that only the Holy Spirit can create. If the church is truly united around Jesus, despite our differences, even through our differences, I think people will start to take Jesus seriously. In our divided culture, few things offer a more compelling witness to the truth of the gospel and to the beauty of the gospel than unity in the church. And this kind of unity isn't something that we can force. We can't manufacture this ourselves. It's not something that we can just do ourselves. It's something that requires a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to move in our midst today. And so we say, come Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit, that is our prayer, Lord. We do need you to move in our midst, to unite us like you did on the birthday of the church. Father, we pray for a fresh filling of your spirit, pray for reconciliation in the church, across traditions, across races, across denominations. We pray for that here, Lord. Would you show up in a powerful way and unite us across our differences and unite us around King Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.